We want to have clear minds to think God's thoughts after him. We want to have hearts that are inclined toward him and tender toward him. We want to do both. I bring that up because we've got some, we're going to do work this morning. Are you ready? Okay, hang on. I'm going to preach a sermon on deconstruction. I have a 10-point chart. <laughs> Are you ready to do work this morning? Yes. Okay. If you have a Bible, turn with me to Luke 24. Luke 24. We come here to do, we, gotta do, we, we come together and sometimes we have to do work because this is a training venue, right? We're being equipped to be missionaries. In 2019, Joshua Harris took to Instagram and he posted, by all the measurements I have for defining a Christian, I am not a Christian. Many people tell me there is a different way to practice faith and I want to remain open to this, but I'm not there now. Now this post would not be noteworthy really in any way except that the Joshua Harris who posted this was the Joshua Harris, the author of a famous or maybe infamous book called I Kissed Dating Goodbye. Okay, we have enough baby Christians and enough people that were kind of a little beyond this in their season of life that you have no idea what I'm talking about, do you? Okay. I Kiss Dating Goodbye was a book that Josh Harris wrote in his teenage years about how dating is unbiblical. And so he, he wrote in this book a, a Christian approach to courting, to courting, like, you know, like Victorian era, you know, Jane Austen courting, right? Joshua Harris was a household name in some corners of evangelical subculture. And so when he shared that he was done with Jesus, that he was done with ministry, and that his marriage was over, uh, it kind of took the evangelical world by storm. Incoming preachers note that illustration did nothing. But um, Joshua Harris is one of dozens of well-known Christians who have undergone a process that we have come to call deconstruction. And it is a journey that your friends, your children, your grandchildren, even some members of our spiritual family have taken this journey over the last few years. Some of you found your way to Regen in the midst of a season of deconstruction. Yamin Hubner, or Jamin Hubner, in his book, Deconstructing Evangelicalism, A Letter to a Friend and a Professor's Guide to Escaping Fundamentalist Christianity. Just listen to that last bit. Escaping Fundamentalist Christianity. He describes the process of deconstruction this way. Deconstruction simply refers to the process of questioning one's own beliefs that were con once considered unquestionable due to new experiences, reading widely, engaging in conversations with the other, and interacting in a world that is now more connected and exposed to religious diversity than ever before. Here's how it goes. 
a friend of yours who is a leader in the church and all in on the way of Jesus, comes to you and over breakfast, with their eyes fixed at the table, they mumble that they have started experiencing some doubts. Doubts over the nature of the Bible, the identity of Jesus, the health of the church universal, the necessity of participating in the church local, questions of love and sexuality and gender and politics, and one moment they are with you every week at church, reliably in the foyer to greet you, reliably standing next to you in worship, and the next they are posting passive-aggressive or maybe just aggressive statements to their social media profiles about the church, about the hypocrisy of Christians, or maybe, maybe they just quietly fade from view until one day somebody says, hey, have you seen so-and-so in a while? As we watch our friends and family members, and maybe you didn't know, maybe you didn't know the thing that your kids and grandkids are doing or have done, maybe you didn't know the thing that your friends have done has a word to describe it, but we have watched our friends and family members and well-known Christian speakers and authors and leaders engage in this process that we've come to call deconstruction, but the question is, what are we supposed to do about it? Our tendency, or at least my tendency, has been to defend, to articulate, to teach, and to correct. Out of a sincere and loving motive, we want to go to coffee and talk. But really, we're interested in doing the talking because we just want to get them back in line. And there can be an urgency to grab our friends by the collar and drag them back to Jesus. But since we find ourselves in, the seri in a series on inner healing, I want to suggest that we don't want to move toward our friends who are deconstructing with the urgency of law enforcement. We want to move toward them with the urgency of an EMT. We want to move toward them with a posture not of instruction, but healing. And not that instruction isn't vital, we'll get there. But correction and teaching and doctrine apologetics are a part of our conversation with our deconstructing friends, but I, I'm going to argue today that a larger part of the conversation has to do with healing. I have watched friends from college, and remember, I went to Bible college. I went to a college that you could only get into if you expressed a clear plan for vocational ministry, okay? The Moody Bible Institute. Um, as I have watched friends from Bible college deconstruct, as I have watched family members and even people in this spiritual family people that I have invested in and discipled deconstruct over the last two years, I have noticed something that I have never noticed before, and I've begun to notice that deconstruction is driven by pain. And so in a series on inner healing, I want to talk about deconstruction, not a series on doctrine, not a series on apologetics, but a series on healing. Because what if Jesus' ultimate desire when confronted by deconstruction isn't instruction but healing 
And what if deconstruction has to do with a place of pain that is in desperate need of Jesus' joyful presence and power? Okay? So we're going to look at Luke 24, but I want us to consider the dynamics of deconstruction because from the outside looking in, deconstruction, it seems to happen suddenly. One day, a person is all in. The next, bam, they are all out. But if you talk to people who are deconstructing, it's actually a process that happens over time. And because they were afraid we would move at them with the urgency of law enforcement, they didn't say anything, right? Roy F. Baumeister is a social psychologist who is the expert on deconversion. He has studied how people deconvert from religion. So I'm gonna give you, I'm gonna take a risk this morning. I'm going to show you a 10-point chart. And I just want to thank you for being the kind of church that can handle it, okay? Because you're smart. But this is uh, how Baumeister kind of uh, identifies uh, how deconstruction works. So people join religion first out of a desire to fulfill a meaning void. They enter religion because they feel a lack of meaning and purpose in their life, which is especially acute during times of crisis or transition. Sometimes people fulfill this void with clubs or sports leagues or parenting or online gaming or work, but a lot of people satisfy that with religion. They come to church, they meet Jesus, and that void is filled. But of course, now we're in step two, as people press into religious life and community, they find that people are messy. Can I get an amen about that, anybody? Okay. So shortly after joining a church, somebody makes a comment about their tattoo. Which, you know, when I make comments about tattoo, it's like, that's really cool, but I understand other church people have different feelings, so I'm sorry about that. Um, or somebody in their small group says something offensive, or they have a run-in with a leader that leaves them a little unsettled. But in the early stages of problem dismissal, these problems are viewed as peripheral, um, as a bug in the system, as temporary, as unrelated to the car cause at hand. But over time, the problems begin to accumulate. These problems stack up, and Baumeister notes that the wonder-to-satisfaction ratio gets out of whack. Do you know what I'm talking about? Like, the level of, like, awkwardness with people is kind of outpacing the wonder, I feel, right? (laughs) Yeah, I'm loving this. Everybody's like, yeah, uh uh-huh. Okay, which this accumulation, uh, the problem accumulation ultimately coalesces in a focal incident, the proverbial straw that breaks the camel's back. Something happens that is like a condensed symbol of everything that has been ignored. And for some, the political climate of the last few years have been that symbol. It could be a pastor's moral failing. It could be the death of a loved one. It's like all of the things that you have been dismissing smack you in the face at once through this one incident. And so you begin to reinterpret your experience of the religion. In the wake of this problem, you see the entire experience in a different light. And the problems are connected, not unrelated. They are permanent. They're not going anywhere. And they are central to what is going on. And so as part of that reinterpretation, villainization takes place. 
In the midst of this reinterpretation, the people you loved, the leaders and the friends, they suddenly become villains instead of heroes. The people who mentored you, you decide, didn't really have your best interests at heart. The pastor was a selfish, narcissistic leader. And at some point, there's got to be a caveat in here that there are toxic churches, there are toxic leaders that need to be fled. But in villainization, we're taking people who have otherwise pure motives, they may be imperfect, but they're otherwise pure and sincere people, and what we start doing is reinterpreting everything they've ever done. Baumeister notes that loyal, devoted adherents to a religious faith recall their conversion in compelling, inspiring, and even heroic terms. Entrance into the religious community is coming home to their rightful place in the universe. But after reinterpretation, he says their conversion is viewed as partial, accidental, mistaken, or a product of inner confusion and neediness. And their membership in a group is described in terms of exploitation and degradation. Is this starting to sound familiar? Anger is then, the problem that you have though is when you're embedded in community is that you're embedded in community. These are your people, and so in order to break away from like the, the gravity well of community, you use anger like rocket fuel to break away. And this is typically where we start to see the social media postings. Of course, the problem is this leaves a person with a meaning vacuum, and what do we know about vacuums is nature abhors them. They have to be filled, and so you begin a relief quest, and the vacuum is quickly filled by a radical progressive agenda, or a radically conservative one. It can be filled with a syncretistic kind of spirituality, mixing yoga with horoscopes and crystals, if you're a basic white girl, or just becoming a... <laughs> an, or just becoming an even more avid fan of your sports team, if you're a guy, or throwing yourself into parenting further. There's new identity formation. Can I just, I want to invite our whole church to observe what is happening in the under 40s. This, you're having a missional insight right now, is what we're having, okay? People over 40 are like, yeah, this sucks too, I'm just not as vocal. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, this is happening too, but the thing that brought you relief is this new identity formation. The thing that brought you relief is now who you are. You are as devoted to politics or your work or your family as you were your religion. Now, this is a lot, but I, I want to explain why we're talking through this. I want to talk, talk about this chart. What we have done is oversimplify deconstruction to people that just don't have what it takes. And if they would just work a little harder or pull themselves up by their bootstraps or listen to better podcasts, then this wouldn't have happened to them. What we have done is oversimplify deconstruction to the point that we have stopped listening to our friends and family. We have oversimplified it, oversimplified it and therefore we have trivialized it, and therefore we do not understand it. And so we, we cast it off to the influence of social media or non-Christian friends or this, that, or the other, instead of understanding the painful process a person has gone through on the way to deconstruction. The first duty of love is to listen. The first duty of love is to listen. And what I'm trying to do is give us things to be listening for. 
The second reason I'm showing you this chart, this, this, uh, the, the second reason I'm showing you this chart is that many of us perceive deconstruction as something to be met with instruction. And that may be the case, especially if a person's deconstruction is rooted in number one on this chart. A lot of people are walking away from Jesus because the Jesus they want isn't who Jesus really is. This is the issue in John 6. In John 6, Jesus feeds the 5,000, which is more like 15 to 20,000. They try to forcibly crown him king. So Jesus turns around and says, well, actually, unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you cannot follow me. And Jesus, at the height of his popularity, loses all of it to the point where he looks at the disciples and he says to them, are you going to peace out to you? Are you going to go? And somewhere between 12 and 120 people say, you alone have the words of eternal life. To whom else would we go? See, they wanted Jesus not for who Jesus is, but who they wanted Jesus to be. See, another reason that people do that, so that's a number one deconstruction, the fulfillment of their meaning void. They were fulfilling their meaning void with a Jesus who isn't Jesus. And sometimes that happens because we present Jesus wrongly. Right? There is a reason that people are deconstructing, and it's the reason that we do not preach the gospel the way that the apostles preach the gospel. Have you noticed that the early church does not preach, if you, if you believe in Jesus right now, you'll die and get to go to heaven, and if you don't, you'll die and go to hell? No sermons like that in the book of Acts. Right? What we've done is we've preached to especially younger generations a gospel of safety, if you do all the right things, your life will be easier. So if deconstruction, and we have to be discerning, if deconstruction is an issue of, a, of the way that the meaning void was fulfilled, then there is room for instruction. Why did you really want Jesus in the first place? But if deconstruction, as we listen, is an issue of number four, of a focal incident of pain, if problem after problem was ignored, but then something happened, this condensed symbol of everything that's been wrong, if it's an issue of number four, we're not talking about instruction, we're talking about healing. Something happened that has created a wound, and we don't fix wounds by talking at them, we fix wounds by helping a person have an encounter with Jesus' joyful presence and power. Now listen, our friends and our family members, they talk a good game. They will mask their pain with a smokescreen of progressive theology and does the Bible really say? And it will make you want to address their theology because you think that's where they are. But if you listen closely, you may find that they're using theology to mask their pain. About a parent who died too soon and why God didn't spare them. About the pastor or parent that abused them and why God didn't protect them. About the leader that taught them one thing and then acted a very different way when conditions changed. That is a healing issue. And boy, is Jesus good at healing. 
Look with me at Luke 24. Luke 24. Luke 24 is the last chapter of Luke's gospel. Jesus has died, now he's risen. And in verse 13, Jesus encounters two of his disciples leaving Jerusalem on their way to a town called Emmaus. Now, archaeologists have begun to think that they've identified where Emmaus may be, but prior to that, and even still, there are scholars who think that Emmaus isn't actually geographically anywhere. That the road to Emmaus is actually a symbol. It's not a geographical destination, but a spiritual one. The spiritual destination is despair and even what we would call deconstruction. I mean, in verse 17, it says that Jesus finds them and pain is written across their faces. So look at verse 19. Jesus asks why they're so sad, what happened, and they, they say this. Well, it's the, the, we're sad because of the things that happened to Jesus, the man from Nazareth. He was a prophet who did powerful miracles, and he was a mighty teacher in the eyes of God and all the people. But our leading priests and other religious leaders handed him over to be condemned to death, and they crucified him. Look at this. We had hoped he was the Messiah who had come to rescue Israel. This all happened three days ago. We had hoped. Then some women from our group of his followers were at his tomb early this morning. And they came back with an amazing report. They said his body was missing, and they had seen angels who told them Jesus is alive. Some of our men ran out to, men ran out to see, and his body was gone, just as the woman had said. This is the source of the sadness on their faces. This is Baumeister's number four. This is the focal incident. We had hoped he was the Messiah. Look at what Jesus responds in verse 25. You foolish people. Okay, stop. Don't say that to your deconstructing friends. <laughs> you, be like Jesus, but not like this way. I don't, I don't know. Like, I mean, save that for a different time. You foolish people. You find it so hard to believe all that the prophets wrote in the scriptures. Wasn't it clearly predicted the Messiah would have to suffer these things before entering his glory? Then Jesus took them through the writings of Moses and all the prophets, explaining to them the scriptures of the things concerning himself. And now some of you are like, see, Kyle, you're wrong. This isn't an issue, a healing issue. This is an apologetics one. Jesus has a Bible study with them. He does not. He does not have a Bible study with them. The word in Greek, so the New Testament for those of you in the room that aren't familiar with this, the New Testament is written in a form of Greek that is no longer spoken, but that has been thoroughly studied because it's not only the language of the New Testament, but it's also the language of like commerce in the first century, okay? So not only, we, we, we can study how the Bible uses it, we can study how other sources use it, really get a good sense. And this word, it says that Jesus took them through the writings of Moses. That word for took them through is a Greek word that is only used six times in the New Testament. Now, one of those times is right here. Four of those times have to do with the interpretation of tongues. 
And the fifth time, it's so-and-so whose name translated means, or whose name interpreted means, okay? It's almost as if what Jesus was doing was interpreting. He, he just interpreted Scripture for them. And, and in fact, if you jump down in verse 32, they reflect on this experience. They say, didn't our hearts burn within us as he talked with us on the road and explained the Scriptures? And again, somebody else is like, all right, Bible study, Kyle. And the word explained simply means opened. There are a lot of words in the New Testament for deep dive teaching on scripture and Luke does not use those words here. He uses words that imply that Jesus just opened to a few passages of scripture and referenced it and this is what it seems that Jesus is doing. He's using scripture tactically and specifically so as to help these disciples on the verge of deconstruction, hear me, interpret their circumstance in light of scripture instead of interpreting scripture in light of their circumstance and here's why this is so important our friends as they deconstruct the first step is interpreting scripture in the light of their circumstances so a friend comes out and everything the bible says is now in question based on that experience right? Friend of theirs confess, says, shares with them, I was sexually abused by my pastor for 10 years. That is real. And I just want to time out and say, the SBC report and ongoing revelations of sexual abuse in the church is part of revival coming. So I'm hearing Christians frame this as like the enemy's work to oppose the church. And I would argue it's the Lord's work because anytime sin is revealed, that's what the Lord does. Okay, and that's part of what revival is. I was saying something. So the friend confesses that, you know, I was sexually abused by my pastor, and what they want to do is interpret Scripture in light of that circumstance. And hear me, we all do that all of the time anyway, right? And so discipleship and apprenticeship to Jesus is always doing the work to interpret our circumstances through the lens of Scripture, and that is a sometimes daily battle in seasons, isn't it? right? It's not something that, like, you just master and then everything gets easy. It gets applied to new seasons. But it seems that as Jesus meets these deconstructing disciples on the road, it's as if he's reinterpreting their, their circumstance in the light of Scripture, just by opening to a few passages of Scripture. So it's as if to say, like, when you're going to have a conversation with your friends that are deconstructing, you don't need to have, like, five podcasts, three articles, ten Bible verses, for them, I think it's a walking by the Spirit and being sensitive to what passages of Scripture would speak life to this. And just opening the Bible once or twice to help interpret their circumstances through the story of Scripture. Please bring Scripture to bear on those conversations, please. Do you know why? Because Hebrews says Scripture is a knife that cuts. It's a sword that cuts through bone and marrow to spirit. And actually the word for sword, it's almost more like a little scalpel, right? Like your words can tickle people's ears, but God's words can cut to the heart. We want to bring Scripture to bear on those conversations, but we don't need to like throw the Bible at them, right? 
That's, when you do that, that's your anxiety, not your compassion. Yeah, or at least it could be. Now, but look at what Jesus does. So he has this little conversation with them, but then look at verse 28. By this time, they were nearing Emmaus at the end of their journey, and Jesus acted as if he were going on. But they said, they begged him, stay the night with us. Now, by the way, they don't know it's Jesus. Have I said that? They don't know it's Jesus yet. They think some random dude is just talking to them about Scripture. Stay the night, it's getting late. And he went with them. And as they sat down, he took the bread and blessed it. Is this sounding familiar? He broke it and gave it to them. Verse 31, suddenly their eyes were opened and they recognized him. And at that moment, he disappeared. Jesus has dinner with the deconstructing. Because sometimes supper is better than a sermon. Sometimes dinner is better than doctrine. Sometimes an appetizer is better than apologetics. Sometimes broken bread is where our healing really begins. Now, as an aside, we're not getting out soon. You just need to settle in now. Listen. <laughs> this, is, this is an important thing for our moment. We need to have, we need to have our heads around this together, don't we? Um, we... we, we as an aside to this, there's one other story in the Gospels where some deconstruction is happening, and it was our Easter passage, John 21. G- Peter, out of a place of pain, remember, it wasn't bad thinking, it was a shameful and embarrassing, painful denial of Jesus that had Peter deconstructing and gone back to fishing. And in that same passage, it takes him a second to recognize Jesus. Interesting. And in that same passage, how does Jesus resolve his deconstruction? With a meal. fascinating. I think about our spiritual legacy as a church. Like, what story has God been telling through this community? And one of the stories is that we have met many people in the wake of a focal incident. We have met many people in the midst of number five, reinterpretation and even villainization, right? And quite often, though certainly not all of the time, but quite often, folks have come to a more biblical, more Jesus-shaped place in the midst of that process. And do you know where it happened? Now, some of you are going to think, oh, it's got to be Kyle's preaching. And it may have been, but it wasn't. And I'm okay with that. Some of you may think, oh, it's the small groups. We do small groups really well here. It may have been, but it wasn't. You know where it happened? When I think of all of the people that have returned to a place of faithfulness in the midst of deconstruction, I think about the dinners and the meals and the lunches and the cups of coffee where we just assumed a posture of, I'm going to be glad to be with you that led people into an encounter with the joyful presence of Jesus. In their deconstruction, our children and our grandchildren, our friends, our coworkers, the spiritual family that have maybe left 
for whom if you're listening to this, you may try to shut the door, but I always, our conviction, Steph and I as leaders in our church, is as the door is slammed, to stick our foot in it to leave it cracked no matter how painful that is. Okay? When our friends are deconstructing, what they don't need is nagged or shamed or chided. They may not lead... It may be helpful, but they may not need primarily a podcast or doctrine or apologetics. They may not need more teaching. What they may need for us is to pray for their healing. There's a difference, isn't there? Lord, cause them to repent of their unbelief and come to a knowledge of the truth versus, Lord, would you heal the wound of their heart? They need to meet Jesus in the grief of their parents' death They need to meet Jesus in their disappointment over this politically divided time. And that's true of left and right people. They need to meet Jesus in their rejection by church people. They need to meet Jesus in the wound they receive from a church leader. And they might meet Jesus best, not at church, not in a gathering, not in a small group, but around a table with broken bread. They might need a meal. They may need for you to be Jesus' agent of healing. They may just need to know that somebody is glad to be with them. And what I think about is, after our third miscarriage, I stood in the kitchen, and Dan Drescher said to me over the phone, I feel like I need to pray for your faith. We went away for, I can't remember if it was two or three weeks, and for the entirety of that time, I'm not sure I knew what I believed anymore. That was not necessarily the case for Steph, but for me, I was like in three, four, five right? And we said to ourselves, we need out of this house. Where, where can we go? Who has said we can go be there? And we thought of our friends, Bob and Pam. They live in Michigan. They teach at Moody. They did our pre-marriage. I texted Pam. I said, hey, we've not talked for a long time. We, had a, we, had, we just had our third miscarriage. We don't know what to do. We need help. Can we come? And the Lord and his grace had arranged it. That was their only free weekend in the month of August. And she replied back two words, yes, come. And we walked on beaches and we sat around tables. And I didn't know that they were opening the scriptures to me. I didn't know they were trying to interpret and nudge, but I drove away and I wept. And I said, I have never felt so loved in my entire life. It's around tables. Let me say this. If you are deconstructing, hear me. If you are deconstructing, or if you're disillusioned on the way to deconstructing, hear me for just a minute. Deconstruction is a good and necessary thing. Deconstruction is a good and necessary thing. Do you know how I know? Jesus deconstructed his faith. Jesus shows up in first century Palestine and he finds a Judaism that has become synonymous with misogyny and racism that is deeply afraid and therefore desperate for political power that has become consumeristic and materialistic to its core and so Jesus deconstructs his faith. However, he deconstructs his faith not according to the cultural norms of his day. 
but according to the Scriptures. You have heard it said, Jesus says, but truly I tell you. You have heard it said, but it is written, Jesus says. He deconstructs his faith, not according to the cultural norms of the day, of the cultural moment, but to the norms of Scripture. And so Jesus deconstructs his faith. And here's the other thing. He stops when he gets to a clear foundation from which to reconstruct. See, that's the problem with deconstruction is it does not end. Because actually what we're doing when we're deconstructing is we're actually just setting a match to the whole thing. We're not getting it. The point of deconstruction is reconstruction. You want to keep digging until you find your way to a solid, Jesus-shaped foundation from which to rebuild. And if you are deconstructing today, I have a challenge, potentially a warning, and I have an encouragement. So here's the challenge. Deconstruction is a process. It, it, you can go ahead and throw up that chart, Amanda. Um, it often begins with this growing apathy or avoidance of community and challenge, and sometimes it stops there. Sometimes it stops that I'm just going to read theology books with my friends at a bar. I don't need church. Sometimes it's, I'm just going to hang out with my family on Sunday mornings, and, and we're going to watch the Browns together, and we're going to pray for lunch. That's, that's my deconstruction. But sometimes it moves to exploring spiritual and theological options, and, and that can mean, you know, rethinking the doctrine of hell to LGBTQ stuff to um, crystals to horoscopes. This is your regular reminder that horoscopes are incompatible with the way of Jesus. I'm just letting you know, right? When you post Scripture, then horoscope, you're saying two plus two equals five. You just can't. Um, and eventually, it can kind of become like, I like Jesus as I understand him, but not the institutional church. So I kind of pray and have spiritual thoughts and listen to Christian music, but I've not been in accountable community for a long time. And then it leads to progressive, and I actually should say here, it can lead to hyper-progressive or hyper-conservative Christianity. Uh, politically speaking and theologically speaking, progressive Christianity being that it is shaped by the cultural values of the world. And, and this is where I'm just going to echo John Mark Comer, who has pastored in one of the most progressive cities in the nation, Portland, Oregon, that in his pastoral experience and in mine, progressive Christianity is just a stop on the road to post-Christianity because it cannot bear the weight of a soul. It has no moral conviction or stance against the world. It's not discipleship in the way of Jesus. Um, if you are deconstructing, my, my warning is there may not, you, you may not realize it, but there really is, it really is a slippery slope in a lot of cases. And I hate to use that argument, but it really is. Especially when deconstruction is done in the absence of community, in the absence of conversation, in the absence of scripture, and in the presence of podcasts, Instagram accounts that, only already, that you already are inclined to agree with. So my, my challenge and my warning is where does it stop? And, and, my, and, and my call to you is stop now. Come back. See, Scripture does say, doesn't it? It does say that we're supposed to go get the person whose faith is failing. So that's what I'm trying to do right now. I'm trying to get you. I'm trying to pluck you back with the urgency of an EMT. Um, but let me offer you an invitation. Let me offer you an invitation to the deconstructing today. There is a lot more room in the historic faith of the church there's a generous spaciousness 
within historical orthodoxy, there is more room for your questions and doubts on the way of Jesus than your upbringing or your experience to this point may have left you to believe. There's more room for your questions and your doubts. There's more room in orthodoxy than you may believe. There's more than enough room in our spiritual family for you if you are deconstructing. And if you are deconstructing from a place of pain, changing your theology, going to a yoga class, changing the way you vote, joining a softball league, losing yourself in your children's extracurricular activities, those aren't gonna heal that wound. If you have been wounded by the church, if you have been rejected by Christians, do you know who is a good friend? Jesus. Rejected by religious people, rejected by the church. Jesus died with the pain of the SBC report on its mind. Jesus died with the wound that you incurred at the hands of church people on his mind. And Jesus can be the healer today. Let me pray for you. Um, Father, we um, just want to, I just look at these people in this room and the people in the sound of my voice who have been hurt. And Jesus, you tell us that you're the healer. And so, um, Father, we pray that you would bring your healing presence and power to bear today. Lord, where there is um, a wound or some cynicism or some disappointment, Lord, would you come? Even now as we break bread together. Amen. Uh, Here at Regen, we do response time because, as we say, we don't want to just be hearers of the word. We want to be doers. We want to be transformed. We want to find healing right? That's what we want to be more like Jesus. So my invitation to you this morning is, um, I don't know, this feels so odd, but I'm wondering if some of you need to repent of of anger toward those in your life who have deconstructed and for maybe your lack of prayer for their healing. So if that's kind of where you're at, I'd invite you just to, during our our time of silence, just to, to ask the Father to change your heart, to give you his heart toward those in your life who are deconstructing that you would pray for their healing, that you would have to move with compassion toward them instead of anger or frustration or anxiety. Um, and for those of you who are, are deconstructing at that number one of kind of beliefs, maybe you even need to forgive the people who you feel like kind of led you astray in beliefs about Jesus. The people that you trusted to kind of teach you about Jesus and you, you, felt, you found those used to kind of fall short. And then for those of you who are in that place of pain, that you would... Be brave enough to ask Jesus to speak to that pain today. That you would invite him in to that place that's so so wounded and so painful and has caused so many questions. You know, as we keep talking about in this series, and, and you know, I am chief among us, it took me years to go to that place to delve into my pain and to find healing, and it's still hard. It's still a journey. Um, just that you would ask Jesus to bring healing. So let's just take a minute.
Father, we live in an angry world. There's so much anger and hurt, not even beneath the surface anymore, but just bubbling always. And so I thank you that you are a God who comes to us in kindness, that it's your kindness that leads us to repentance, that it's your, your, your hesed, your never-ending love that moves toward us in our pain. Jesus, we repent of the ways in which we've avoided you. We repent of the ways in which we haven't trusted you with our lives and the lives of those we love. We repent of our anger. We repent of our anger when you haven't done what we wanted you to do or hoped you would do. We repent of our anger when we see people acting in ways that we disagree with so strongly. Jesus, we pray that you would replace our, our hearts of anger and control with hearts of love and forgiveness and compassion. That we would move toward those in our life who need you. That we would seek healing for ourselves and for others. And that, Father, that we would be transformed. That as you purify and refine our hearts, that revival would come. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.